Welcome back to Game of Our Lives. I'm David Goldblatt. It's the first week of the World Cup. An awful lot of games have been played. And here to revel in it, explore it, talk about it and deconstruct it is my man, Al Jazeera journalist, Tony Caron. Hello, Tony. Hello, David. And the man at the dials, Roger Shah. Are you there, Roger Shah? I am here, David, reporting for duty. <laughs> and what duty it's been this weekend. The World Cup has brought us an enormous variety of different games. We've had the classically dull 1-0 victory for Sweden over South Korea by a penalty. We've had the endlessly disappointing spectacle of Nigeria again underperforming. We've had the sublime beauty of a truly great football match between Spain and Portugal we've had the fabulous upset of Iceland 1, Argentina 1 and best of all, surely the best upset of this World Cup so far Mexico, Germany 1-0 to El Tree Tony, I was following you on social media during that game and you were, to say the least, excited how did it go for you? <laughs> well, I'm glad that in our preview of the match I called out Chucky Lozano because El Chucky delivered that was an absolutely spectacular game of football. It was a brilliant piece of coaching and tactical preparation. But the most beautiful thing I saw around that game was somebody on Twitter posting this video of their abuela, their grandmother, literally during the anthem, standing in front of the TV screen and making the sign of the cross, blessing each of those players. Talk about breaking the fourth wall. <laughs> this is being there. This is the digital game as we know it now. That what I loved at the end of that sequence, Tony, is how she did the last kind of cross and then she just like walked away. Job done. Finished. Yeah. And off she went. I mean... She did do a double blessing on Memo Choa though and he did play <laughs> the game of his life. Okay, maybe she needs to keep up with that in the second and third game. What did you make of Germany though? I mean, the world champions, the number one in the FIFA rankings and yet when, when it actually came to it, there didn't seem to be a great deal of creativity. There didn't even seem to to be much of a plan towards the end other than banging a lot of crosses in. Well, yeah, and as I have to say, maybe it's a question of desire. Maybe this German team has won too much together. You look at Thomas Müller and you're like, you again? Are you still here? <laughs> like, it's not really regenerating. There's this, you know, team of players that have been around for forever. They've won just about everything. The Mexicans certainly wanted that game more. Yeah, now you could see it was uh, the way that the speed in which people were moving into the spaces behind the German midfield. I mean, actually, if they were really good at counter-attacking, they should have been 3-4-0 up from the kind of chances they were creating. Exactly. It's not like their forwards are particularly efficient. Uh, you know, as you say, they could have won that game by two or three goals. And I think I would have to revise my uh, estimate that Germany will start this tournament as favourites. Because, you know, was that just the hiccup that you sometimes see at the start of a tournament? Believe me, nobody, in, nobody here is writing the Germans off right now. Meantime, as uh, has been widely reported, the uh, celebrations in Mexico City when that goal went in were so extraordinarily large that we actually got earthquake sensors going off. And I note that, you know, we are in the middle of a Mexican election campaign and the front runner, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, you know, had one of his biggest rallies before that game, walks off and then Mexico go and perform fantastically. I wonder if this is a herald of the changing of the guard in Mexico at the same time. Yes, I think that earthquake may not be the last one we see. There may be a political earthquake. Of course, Lopez Obrador might actually say that if you had video-assisted refereeing in Mexico elections, he would have won last time. <laughs> Roger, have you been following any of this? Uh, you want to know, Mexico, Germany, I have to admit, I was a bad student, and uh, 8 a.m. on a Sunday was a little bit early, 
And yet the game came to me anyway because I was woken up by the sound of these blood-curdling screams coming from the alley behind my house. And uh, I was a little bit... Well, do you live in Mexico City? Well, I live in the Mission District, which is a Mexican-American enclave in San Francisco going back for decades. Um, And uh, after about a minute, I was like, oh, right, Mexico has scored a goal. (laughs) And sure enough, yeah, that was about 8.30 in the morning. Yeah, it was crazy. It was crazy. Okay, next next time Mexico are playing, dude... You need to be out. Set the alarm. We must speak a little, Tony, about Portugal, Spain. I mean, rarely actually in international football or indeed at a World Cup and certainly in the opening rounds do you see a game simply so absolutely brilliant. I mean, spellbindingly good. As good as anything pretty much I've seen in the Champions League this year. How was it for you? Absolutely. I I think it's very rare that you get a showcase of these two contrasting styles that are both at the top of the European game right now. So essentially what you were looking at was was Jose Mourinho versus Pep Guardiola in a way. Spain was playing uh, a progressive possession game, you know, not not tiki-taka for its own sake, holding on to the ball, but moving that ball forward, creating opportunities, a lot of short passing in ridiculously small spaces. It was it, it was one of those like it takes your breath away. It's like ole ole, absolutely. You are seeing something special and and then you see you know the Mourinho park the bus and then you know the lightning counter-attack absolutely brilliant brilliant exposition of that style and then you also see the kind of uh, what we would call in in the old British tradition the Roy of the Rovers tradition where one man makes a huge huge difference Cristiano Ronaldo really wins that game single-handedly in a way that's not right it's it becomes less and less possible in today's game well he doesn't win it Tony I mean he gets it to 3-3 but hey that's pretty good one man against 11 and that as you say is one of the joys of that game is not merely the contrast in style, but it's that uh, balance that football has between being a team game and a game that showcases a brilliant individual, and it can do both. And here we had both going on at the same time. I thought the sign-off from that free kick, I mean, how he got it over the wall and down, and yet there was something in his eyes. There is something extraordinary in Ronaldo's eyes before he takes a free kick or a penalty, and you just kind of know when it's It's going in when you see it. Absolutely. The body language and the desire. Talking of desire, we simply must talk a little bit about Argentina-Iceland. 1-1. Who would have thought? Absolutely extraordinary performance from Iceland. I read that 99.6% of the television audience was watching that game back home. And one of the players later tweeted the other 0.4% must have been on the field. What a game. What did you make of it, Tony? That was amazing. I think that it's hard not to love Iceland, particularly this idea that this is a bunch of guys who have played together since they were 12 years old. It's almost like the school team made it all the way to the World Cup. Like they've known each other forever. They're friends. They take vacations together. And, you know, here they are basically confounding what are one of the the favorites going into the tournament, confounding Messi just by the the setup, the dedication, the determination, the athleticism that they bring. And really, I think they expose some fundamental weaknesses that we've seen many times from Argentina being less than the sum of their parts that, you know, I'm beginning to think like, where's the Raquel in Yeah, where is an Argentina without a playmaker? I'm really struggling, you know, when uh, Mascherano, you know, is the heart really of the midfield, you know, you know, you're not going anywhere. Right. And and, and much and, as I love Masha, no, I love much as I love him. Don't get me wrong. But if you're looking for kind of creativity and forward movement, it's not happening. 
One game that we haven't talked about so far that brought me particular pleasure was Iran-Morocco. And Iran-Morocco was won 1-0 in the 95th minute by a devastating, unjust, unfair and Utterly delicious own goal by Morocco, giving Iran only their second victory in a World Cup match. There are so many reasons to be talking about Iran at this World Cup, both on the pitch and off the pitch. And I'm delighted to say that our guest today is Marni Jasmi. He's a football journalist, born in Iran, currently living and working in London for the BBC. He's out in Russia right now, living the life and generally on the move. I'm really pleased that he managed to find a few minutes so we could catch up. The train is arriving at Tveil Station. <laughs> Are we all good? Uh, yes, that's better, that's better, yeah. Marty, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Where are you at the moment and what are you doing? Well, I'm currently on a train between Moscow and St. Petersburg. Um, I've based in St. Petersburg for this coming week uh, with the Russian team to follow them. But I took a quick trip to Moscow just for the day. It's only four hours on a train. Uh, I say only, I'm already adjusted to the vast distances of Russia. <laughs> uh, but I took a quick trip to uh, interview the Iran coach Carlos Kerosh today. But now I'm sitting on the train back to St. Pete. I have a real soft spot for late and unjust own goals. I wonder in the light of Iran-Morocco how you feel about that in football. Um, well, it was late, David, but I'm not sure if it was unjust. Um, I thought on the basis of the game, well, the first half anyway, Iran had the better chances. The second half was completely tedious and I was just preparing a tweet whinging about the lack of development in Africa and Asia because these were the two best teams from those continents really um, when that goal went in and when it did go in uh, there was just an eruption of emotion not just amongst the Iran fans but also obviously the neutrals I mean who doesn't like a dramatic late winner it's such a great way to win a football match with the last kick of the game. Absolutely superb. Isn't it just? Isn't it just? It was like Iran had won the World Cup. Yeah, you know, know, they'd won the first game in the group, but they'd like won the World Cup. The tears of the team, the emotion was just extraordinary. It was. And it was only the second time that Iran had won a match in the World Cup. That's why it meant so much. It wasn't just another World Cup group match. It was the second time in their entire history that they'd won a World Cup match 20 years after the first one. Right, back in 1998 was the last time they won a game actually at the World Cup. Yeah, against the United States. So did you get any sense of how this was greeted back in Iran, in Tehran? I understand that there were plans to um, allow people to go to the Azadi uh, and you know have a kind of big outdoor viewing of the game that were cancelled at the last moment. People were kind of restricted to cafes and cinemas. Did you get a sense of how people responded at the end of the game there? They were literally dancing on the streets of Tehran and all the other major cities. I've seen uh, clips on Twitter with men and women dancing together, as they often have done in the past when Iran have qualified for the World Cup. And I got uh, some WhatsApp voice messages from my cousins in Esfahan, and you could hear the beeping in the background, and the and they were just screaming down the phone at me. Uh, so whether they were in the Azadi or not, it didn't really matter because when the goal went in they were all on the streets and how did the authorities react to this because 
you know, in official terms, men and women should not be dancing together in the streets. So how do they respond on these occasions? Do they just stand off and let the people have their space? Well, how can they respond when there are millions and millions of people on the streets? And there are far more people uh, on the streets celebrating than there are trying to keep things in check. It is impossible to control. I seem to recall back in 2014 that President Rouhani was tweeting himself rather than in clerical robes in his um, Team Melly kit. I'm wondering, are we seeing similar kind of uh, statements from uh, Iranian politicians this time around? Well, I don't know about that, but I think if Iran get a result of any description against Spain or Portugal, if they go into the last game of the group against Portugal with a chance of qualifying, which I think they will now, then the football bandwagon will have to make room for one politician after another as they all squeeze on and attempt to get their faces in the photo. What a very familiar story. (laughs) Tell me, how do people feel about this team in particular? We've got quite a few players who've come from the diaspora, the huge Iranian diaspora. Players like uh, Godos, for example, or Dijaga, uh, I think you pronounce it. How does the homeland perceive diasporic players? Well, this is something that's taken a long time to come round to Iran's team. I mean, if you look at uh, Morocco's team, I mean, barely any of them uh, were born in Morocco. Hervé Renard, their French coach, has to give his team talks in English and French because, you know, that's, that's the language in which uh, you know, the, the, those players speak because most of them have grew up in Holland or, or France. This didn't happen to Iran until 2006 when a player who was uh, half German, half Iranian was drafted into the World Cup squad at the last moment. And that was a very controversial move. It was very divisive. But that's very much in the past. All of these players are accepted and loved. You know, Iranians are proud that Salman Bordus, who's had such a good season in Sweden, is now a member of their team. So there is absolutely no problem with any of them. They have been embraced as if uh, they were born and bred in Tehran and never left the street in which they were born. It strikes me it's so hard for Iran as a team to escape global geopolitical narratives when they're playing. On this occasion, Nike come out before the first game and say, you can't have the boots, guys. The new sanctions imposed by the Trump regime mean we can't supply you, even though you know, they've been supplying Team Melly forever. What did people in Iran make of that gesture? How did that go down? Well, I think that story has been rather misrepresented what happened was, Salman Qaddus, who we've, we've just been talking about, he had a sponsorship with Nike for his boots. But when he switched his citizenship from Swedish to Iranian in order to play for Iran, then he, he personally was subject to the sanctions because he was an Iranian citizen. And for Nike to continue supplying him and to have a financial transaction with him would have been to risk prison sentence, millions of dollars of fines. But they didn't say to him, give us our boots back. I mean, he was wearing Nike boots today in training. I was there. Right. And he wasn't the only one. So it it wasn't the case that, uh, you know, Nike turned up at the hotel and 
forcibly chopped off the laces of their boots nothing like that at all okay that is so interesting because that is absolutely not the impression that most of the stories that are flying around are given i will say though the best response i saw to this uh, on twitter today was uh, people posting just do it colon but without you <laughs> which i thought was just a great way of putting it <laughs> yes <laughs> when we're talking about iranian football often the discussion comes back to the place of women in the game and it seems that even here at the men's world cup quite a few folks turned up at the iran morocco game with banners protesting the exclusion of women from stadiums in iran and indeed open stadiums is a, a whole network of activists who that use team melly's away games to publicize this issue i actually um, met the lady behind the open stadiums uh, twitter feed on saturday in st petersburg and it was the first time that she had seen Iran play live in the flesh. It was the first time that she'd been to a men's game in her life. Wow. And she said that she didn't know how to cheer because she'd only ever seen football on TV and she'd had an idea of what an atmosphere was like, but it's, it was completely different when she was there. And she said it was so noisy, so loud, that she, her ears were ringing afterwards. And as she was climbing the steps to her seat, she kept stopping and looking back and just looking down at all the fans behind her. She was like you and I were, David, the first time we went to a match, yeah. whenever that was for you. I was, uh, I was about 10 or something. And, you know, she was wide-eyed and she still couldn't believe that she'd been there 24 hours on. And what a game! What a game for the first, for your first game to go to! I know. Yeah. I mean, my first game was a really miserable friendly between England and Scotland at Wembley that was so bad my old man made us leave before the end. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, mine was uh, mine was a game in the old Zenith Data Systems Cup, which doesn't exist anymore between Cambridge United and Charlton. But her first game was a World Cup victory for Iran. <laughs> well, she deserves it. What sort of support do you think that she is getting amongst the diaspora and back in Iran? How is this read? Oh, lots of support. Lots of support, both at home and abroad. In fact, a few days ago, Ali Dai, the, uh, the Iranian legend, the striker who scored more international goals than any other man in history, um, he, he came out and said it's time that women were allowed into the stadiums. Many other top players, many of the current squad have said the same thing. But it's not a football issue. It's a political issue. The Iran Football Federation have absolutely no power in this debate and neither have FIFA. You know, there's a lot of criticism for FIFA for not stepping in and doing more, but this goes up to the very highest echelons of Iranian government. You know, it's in the hands of the supreme leader, and it doesn't matter what FIFA say, they cannot overcome that. What about within Iran? I mean, even within the most conservative forces, is there a sense of any movement or a reinterpretation of the theology that might make possible uh, an easier environment for mixed viewing? Um, I doubt it. I mean, you know, Iran's one of, I was going to say Iran's great enemy, I mean, but they have several, but one of them is Saudi Arabia. And, you know, they allowed women into the stadiums in January. And you would think that, you know, that might cause some kind of a jolt in Iran, but it hasn't. And, you know, the conservative element of Iranian politics is genuinely conservative. And... No, I, I, I don't sense any kind of movement towards that. I mean, Gianni Infantino, the president of FIFA, was in Iran uh, last uh, month, a few weeks ago, 
and you know he brought this up and I mean, what is he supposed to do? I mean, if FIFA ban Iran, what what, what do they think the Supreme Leader is going to do? Exactly. I mean, is he going to say suddenly say, oh, the the national team can't play football anymore? Okay, we'll change everything. I mean, it's not just not going to happen. Absolutely. No, no. This is going to have to come from within. I thought it was so interesting. Sorry, David. There's another announcement. <laughs> okay. Okay, Marnie, it was so interesting to hear you talk about the woman from Open Stadiums and her first game is a men's game at the World Cup. And you, in a funny way, have kind of done it the other way around as a man who was the first to see a women's game or a women's football practice in Iran. And I wonder, how did that come about and and what did you make of that? Well, this was back in 2004. So I got a number of a coach uh, who was coaching one of the clubs in Tehran and I introduced myself we had a chat and I said can I come and record your training just so I can have some atmos- atmosphere for my report and she said well you're a man how are you going to come men aren't allowed into women's football and I said well there are two reasons why I think you should let me come one is that I've come all the way from London and two is that I'm totally blind so I won't be able to see your players and she paused for a bit and she said Okay, all right, you can come. Can't argue with that. (laughs) I just wonder if you can give a sense, when you're in the stadium, you know, how are you doing your reporting? How are you following the game? What are you tuning into? You know, how do you do it? Well, um, if I'm at a match for work, then um, I have someone with me who commentates for me if it's in a country where I don't understand the language. And there's a lot of preparation that goes into it. I mean, I have... You know, a good knowledge of a lot of players, what kind of players they are, where they play, the tactics of the team, the tactics of the coach. So, for example, I mean, if there's a left winger who is cut up against a right back who I know to be particularly aggressive in the challenge, then I will keep a mental note of that. And if at some point that right back gets booked, then I'll know to ask what kind of a challenge it was. So, you know, I have to do a lot more preparation, I suppose, than than sighted people when they go to report on matches they can pick stuff up as they're watching it you know if they have never seen these players they they can gauge pretty early on what kind of players they are but i need to know what kind of players they are before the match kicks off and are you also are you do you find yourself you're particularly tuned to the sounds of the stadium as well yeah i mean you can gauge to a degree it gives you a kind of a guide a loose guide but no more than that final question marnie Iran have opened, you've got three points, still got two incredibly difficult, I mean impossible games really, Spain, Portugal to come. What do you think the chances of Iran making it through to the next round are? Well, I think um, with these three points, I think it will go down to the wire, possibly for all four teams. Um, I was with Carlos Queiroz today, the coach, and I said to him, what do you think about Spain then? What are your tactics going to be? And he laughed. And he was, he was, obviously wasn't going to tell me that, but he did say um, we're going to need about 16 players and all of them are going to have to run like two players. They are very, very difficult games. I suspect he'd take a draw if he got one against Spain and then maybe aim for Portugal's uh, slightly dodgy defence at the end, although they have the magic man who could beat anyone on his own, Ronaldo. But, you know, four years ago, uh, Iran played Argentina in the group. Argentina, who got to the final and lost in the extra time to Germany. And But for a stupid 
stupendous Lionel Messi goal in the 91st minute, they would have got a draw out of that game. So I wouldn't put it past them to get a draw out of Spain and, and you know, to just block them up. Nothing wrong with that. I'm all for blocking up. Absolutely. I mean, it, you play to your strengths. Well, let's hope that the blocking works. Let's hope they squeeze some points out of their Iberian opponents. It's been lovely talking to you, Marnie. Thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you for inviting me, David. It's a pleasure. Hope to talk to you again. You can follow Marnie on Twitter at BBC underscore Marnie. That's BBC underscore Marnie, M-A-N-I. Tony, what did you make of what Marnie was saying about the Iranian camp? I have to say, I'm looking forward to a little more reporting on this Iran-Nike deal. I think there may be more going on than simply one uh, one player's sponsorship deal, and certainly the response from K- Carlos Queiroz and from you know the Iranian football authorities suggest there might be more going on. But uh, the other thing I'd say on this, this is a fascinating World Cup in that it's shown us that uh, if you if your players have a basic level of technical competence, you can set up in a way that will make it really difficult for the most powerful teams in the world to beat you very little teams like iceland uh you know like like iran can actually hold at bay these these mighty football powers particularly if they don't really have a a plan b for unlocking a defense that's basically sending back i'm particularly concerned that that scenario might pertain for tunisia versus england and i should say that we are recording this at approximately 6 p.m gmt we have one hour before england take the field i have to admit i am getting my usual completely irrational surge of english optimism at this point um but we should wrap this up no roger i thought you were trying to say that england might be parking the bus Oh, no. And thwarting Tunisia. Hey, bless England. One thing this England team will not do is park the bus. They really uh, haven't got the equipment for it, have they? Let's let's be honest. Well, no, hang on. Before we go, we, we do have to get to our what to watch for today. Okay. Let's go ahead and hear our bumper. What what to, to watch? Watch. What, 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 what to watch? So I, I think there were like 13 games since our last episode and maybe another nine before our next one's coming out. So yes, the, the need for curation is clear and I'm coming to you guys again for your guidance. What should I watch? Tony, let's start with you. Well, as we were saying earlier, the Argentina-Croatia game will be fascinating. This is an Argentina team that's now had its nose bloodied. It's under immense, immense pressure back home. Maradona has basically told the coach, don't even come home if you can't you know, raise your game like this. <laughs> and what they suffered against Iceland was basically being unable to beat a, a team that's spoiling their game plan. Croatia was very workmanlike against Nigeria, nothing special. But you know that in that midfield, they have the capacity to thwart Argentina and particularly with Argentina's lack of creative resources. So, you know, I think this is a must win for Argentina now. And this could very easily prove to be another disaster for Argentina. Tony, what about a shout out for Poland-Senegal? And I say that because, like, we're waiting for an African team to really deliver. And, you know, I've got to say, what a soft spot I have for Sadio Mane, Senegal's leading striker, fabulous for Liverpool this season. I'm really hoping that he can show what he's made of and actually get an African team a victory here. 
Absolutely. I think, you know, there's no question for me from the beginning that Africa's hopes at this tournament are being carried by Senegal. It's not only Sadio Mane, as fabulous as Sadio Mane is, he's got Diafra Sarko next to him and one of the most coveted centre-backs in Europe, uh, Khalidou Koulibaly. You're talking about a very, very tough team and a team with a lot of flair, a lot of explosive firepower and a very solid defensive core. My greatest moment in World Cup history would be when Papa Bubba Diop scrambled the ball across the line in 2002. And I screamed so loud, my son was absolutely terrified. He'd never seen such a visceral <laughs> uh, reaction from me. I am hoping that Senegal is going to give us the best performance of any African team and the whole continent is behind them. Senegal is flying the flag for Africa. David, what about you? What are you going to be looking for? Well, I'm, you know, spending a little bit of my time rather than watching just what's going on on the pitch, watching who's commentating and calling on these games around the world. So my segment today is more who to watch and just to let people know for the first time in my experience, you've really got a change in the gender balance of who is commentating, presenting and calling these games. I mean, it particularly, you know, uh, came to mind because Eni Aluko, the uh, ex-England international is one of the co-hosts on ITV here in England. And there was a moment where her co-host, Patrice Evra, was fabulously condescending and patronising to her. And you could see that came from a place of insecurity because she knew what she was talking about. She'd done her homework. And bless Patrice Evra, he really hadn't done his homework and he doesn't know what he's talking about. But that aside, she's been great. You know, we're going to have Vicky Sparks on the BBC being the first woman to call a World Cup game here. In the United States, we've had Ali Wagner, a former star from the US Women's National Team, who's become the first woman to call a Men's World Cup on US television. We also have Hannah Markland in Sweden. And of course, we have Lise Klavnes calling games for NRK in Norway. So I'll be really interested to hear from our listeners. Are there other examples of this? Do we have a real breakthrough in the press box and in the TV studio at this World Cup? I'm so certainly seeing signs and they're welcome signs. All right. Now, I think you do actually. Uh, I'm worried about you and England-Tunisia, so we should probably yeah, wrap I'm it up. Worried. I'm worried too. There <laughs> needs to be a whole period of meditation and calmness before the storm begins. So without further ado, I will say this show is a production of Al Jazeera's Jetty Studios, recorded at the Soundtown Studios in Bristol, UK. Our music, as ever, is by Bang Data. Remember, we are coming out twice a week now during the World Cup, and we'll be back on Friday. The best way to get new episodes of this show is to subscribe if you haven't already. Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter. We're at, at Game of Our Lives. And it just remains to say, thank you very much, Tony Karen. Always. <laughs> and thank you very much, Roger Shah. Thanks, David. I'm David Goldblatt, and we'll see you on Friday. I think Belgium just scored. Oh, Romelu scored again. Lukaku just scored again. I'm t I had to turn off the TV now. <laughs>